from KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Michael Krasny. Two decades ago, political scientist Robert Putnam's best-selling book, Bowling Alone, struck a nerve with its stark warning about loosening social and political cohesion in America. In their new book, The Upswing, Putnam and co-author Shailen Romney Garrett offer solutions for improving civic life in a country beset by COVID-19 and a divisive election. Putnam and Garrett join forum to talk about the book and share lessons from history about how the U.S. can recover social trust and a collective national identity. That's next after this news. Welcome to this morning's forum. I'm Michael Krasny. 2020 is by no means the first time the U.S. has undergone enormous civic divisions. That's according to the authors of a new book, The Upswing, How America Came Together a Century Ago and How We Can Do It Again. Political scientist Robert Putnam and writer Shailen Romney Garrett argue that the Gilded Age was a time of similar social strains, but that those tensions were reversed. The period from the late 1800s up to the 1960s saw major improvements in social trust and community activism, and Putnam and Garrett think it can happen again. A research professor of public policy at Harvard University, Robert Putnam is also the author of the best-selling Bowling Alone, which warned decades ago of a breakdown in social and political cohesion in America. And he and Shailen Romney Garrett join us now, and we have welcomed both of them. Bob Putnam, good to have you back with us. It's always great to be with you, Michael. I've been really looking forward to this. And me too, and good to have you with us, Shailen Romney Garrett. Appreciate your being with us as well. Thank you, Michael. And let me just say with a little bit of uh, a tease here that uh, these two have been collaborating now between three and four years. Uh, uh, Bob Putnam is certainly familiar to uh, forum listeners. He's been on the air with us a number of times with other books. He's written 14 books. And uh, he's also known in a venerable way, I suppose, uh, with a lot of gravitas as uh, a poet of civil discourse uh, and civil society. Uh, Shanlin is a social entrepreneur, a pharmaculturalist, uh, spent six years in Jordan and is fluent in uh, uh, Arabic from being in the Hash- uh, Hashemite uh, kingdom. And she's also uh, a graduate of Harvard. I said there'd be a little tease here. And I saw the interview that you both did with uh, Stanford historian David Kennedy. And I want to bring that up because later on in the program, I want to ask you where you do differ in terms of the upcoming election. I know you have different views based perhaps to some extent on geography, but let's talk first about the book itself. And Bob, just describe for listeners uh, the I-we-I curve that's really at the heart of your book and the thesis. Sure. Um, Well, Michael, um, you gave a a good quick introduction to it. Um, We look at long-run trends Um, over 125 years in various measures of how America's doing. We can look at long-run trends in economic equality and inequality. And that that chart, there's a key chart in the the book, actually. That chart shows America in 1890 was about as unequal as it ever has been in our history until now. And then that, the, the economic equality curve shows gradual uh, th- that we be- gradually become beginning around 1910 become more and more equal 
in, by many measures, more and more equal in terms of wealth, more and more equal in terms of income, more and more equal in terms of um, things like uh, health status and so on. Um, gradually uh, continuing that, that climb in, in equality up until about 1970, roughly speaking. And then there's a sharp turn. And over the last 50 years, there's been sharply declining economic equality. And that part of the story is well known to everybody because that's what we've been talking about the last couple of years or a couple of decades. Now, if you took a look at a different, um, a different measure of how well we're doing, that is political polarization, it turns out that curve is essentially identical. That is, it begins in a very, uh, with a, a very polarized America in, in uh, 19, around 1890, roughly speaking, probably more polarized than any time in our history ever, except the Civil War. So the Civil War was a big deal, obviously. And then uh, since then, we also had that great degree of polarization around 1890. And then uh, about, about 1910, we begin to have become less polarized, more cross-party collaboration by many different measures. And that rises until about 1960, just about. And then, it, then that turns. And we, over the last 50 years, we've had sharply increasing polarization. And again, that part of the story is, is well known, but we're just putting it together with some things that are not so well known. There's a similar kind of curve. Um, I'm going to use a little bit of jargon here, Michael, because you and your listeners will be familiar with it. Social capital, which just is my term for connecting with other people. And that curve looks the same. In, in 1890, Americans were really disconnected from their community institutions, from their family, from their neighbors. And then a similar turning point around 1910, all of those measures of, of social capital, of social connection begin to rise steadily up until about 1965, and then they turn south and become, we become let more and more disconnected, more and more socially isolated. And again, that part, the last part of that story is, is pretty well known. The first part I think is not so well known. And finally, and I'm, I'll try to be brief here, the, the last measure we have is a measure of, of culture, the degree to which America's culture has been highly individualistic, um, narcissistic even, or in which we, we, we talk about, we have measures of the degree to which Americans essentially believe we're all in this together. And that curve looks identical to all those other curves. They all look so similar that you can put them on one graph without doing any damage to the underlying measures because they're all so closely correlated. And, um, and at the end, we call that the I-we-I curve because we begin in, in America was very much focused on the I. By the middle and late middle 20th century, by the 60s, America had become not a perfect we, of course, but much more we than we have ever been or are now. And then, as I say, in the middle 60s, that turns sharply away from a focus on what we have in common, and we're back. And this part, everybody knows. I mean, you know, within the, I'm now talking about current events. We are incredibly divided now. Oh, we're and, in a kind of you, you uh, curve here of individualistic uh, versus communitarian. I mean, that's the real uh, dialectic that you're talking about here. And uh, I wanted absolutely. to get and a lot of it. I mean, you crunch a lot of detail here uh, and, and do uh, an extraordinary amount in terms of uh, the range of what you pinpoint. Uh, let me bring you into this, uh, Shailen Romney Garrett, if I may, particularly in light of the fact that um, this, as the century opened, we had much more of what Bob has, I think, aptly described as uh, egalitarianism and uh, cooperation, cohesiveness, altruism, really, interdependence, all that, civic, civic and social strains, really, that were very similar to um, 
what we want to be going through now, maybe, uh, or what we hope we can extend into now, if this is indeed a dialectic. Uh, but I, there, there, this, we're really talking here about white men, aren't we? Uh, just really exclusively white men and certainly no Internet. Shailen, can I bring your board? When we talk about characterizing those that first two-thirds of the century um, as America's sort of we decades, right, um, you bring up the, the sort of greatest exception to that, which, of course, was um, the fact that, of Jim Crow um, at the turn of the, the 20th century. Things were, the outlook was incredibly bleak for African Americans. Um, they had made a lot of progress um, in the directly in the wake of Reconstruction, but that progress reversed as the South engaged in what historians have called redemption, which was basically a violent reclaiming of white hegemony uh, in the South. And that extended not, uh, you know, into the, the following century um, in the form of Jim Crow, which was a reality both in the South and in the North. And so one question is, you know, exactly what you bring up. Was this simply a white male we? And the answer to that is in certain respects, yes. I mean, but but as we looked at the long range, the long range data regarding race, particularly um, whether whites and blacks were approaching or not parity over the course of the century, we saw some surprises. Um, I think a lot of times when people think about the history of the 20th century in terms of race, they think of, of what we might call a sort of hockey stick story. So if Bob has described these um, inverted U curves, right, that sort of go up over the course of the century and then come back down. A lot of people think that when you look at race, um, it was more of, more of a hockey stick, a complete flat line, total um, lack of progress uh, until the lightning bolt changes of the 1960s when things got better and better. And in some ways, that's definitely true. Um, particularly so in the longstanding lack of equity in black political representation, um, the thriving of white supremacy in mainstream culture and media, um, long delayed entry of black Americans into professional schools and jobs, and of course, um, entrenched residential segregation. So in, in many ways, you know, there was a lot, um, there was, there was a lot of exclusion, a persistent reality of exclusion um, being experienced by Black Americans. But on the other hand, when you look at the material well-being, the relative material well-being of Blacks and whites in America, and when we talk about material well-being, we're talking about things like life expectancy, health measures, we're talking about um, access to education, uh, degree completion, we're talking about income and, and wealth. When you look at whether or not Black and white Americans were approaching equality over the course of the first two-thirds of the century. Uh, what's surprising is that um, in measure after measure, the rate of positive change for black Americans was actually faster in the decades preceding the civil rights revolution than in the decades that followed. Now, that was a big surprise for us as we looked at this data. So what we see is a too slow, but nonetheless unmistakable decades-long trend toward racial equality during the, that we period. And a lot of that, excuse me, uh, is pretty much evidence in the book by Isabel Wilkerson uh, yes. about the Absolutely. migration from the South and, and leaving the South and creating, as you point out, uh, African-Americans creating their own institutions and finding more equity, uh, eventually, ultimately leading to the civil rights movement. But I want to get us back and to understanding what was happening here, because there's some pretty socially dynamic and culturally dynamic forces that we're talking about. And we're talking about in some ways, uh, aren't we, Bob Putnam, a bit of a reaction against social Darwinism uh, that led to what is called progressivism. It's not progressivism as we mean it by today's lexicon, but a progressivism more identified with uh, 
well, that racist Woodrow Wilson, but also people like uh, Walter Lippmann and uh, Jane Addams, for that matter, Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. Well, that's certainly right, Michael. Um, uh, by the way, I hope and I'm sure when we get to the, uh, your calls from your listeners that we'll get back to race because there's, there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, there about is race, indeed. Including yeah. what's what happened after the civil rights movement, which turns out to be quite important. But I want to answer um, the question about um, about the well, I want to put the, the question about the social Darwinism in a slightly larger frame. Um, uh, in the late in the late um, 19th century, the dominant philosophical, I would say, outlook in America was called social Darwinism. It was a, actually Darwin himself did not uh, did not endorse this, but it was involved the idea that among humans, just I mean, among in sort of society, as in the wild. Um, so to speak, uh, survival of the fittest meant that this was the social Darwinists' claim: we would all be better off, or at least the race would, the, the human beings would be better off if we all just looked out for number one. Um, it actually is such a bizarre philosophy that it's now hard to make people believe that anybody actually believed that. But actually, it was the dominant philosophy in, in the U.S. and to some extent in Britain. Um, Bob, excuse me, hold that thought. You heard music coming up. That means we have to break away for about 60 seconds, but we'll return and we'll pick up there. If you just joined us, we're talking to Robert Putnam and Shailen Romney Garrett about their new book. It's called The Upswing, How America Came Together a Century Ago and How We Can Do It Again. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum, and I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking with political scientist Robert Putnam and his co-author Shailen Romney Garrett about their new book. It's called The Upswing, How America Came Together a Century Ago and How We Can Do It Again. And what are your thoughts about how the United States can come together again and restore social trust? If you have some thoughts or if you have questions about the thesis that is in this book, you can give us a call now, and I invite you to do that. The toll-free number to join us at is 866-733-6786. Again, the number to call 866-733-6786, or get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email us, forum at kqed.org. When we went to that break, Robert Putnam, you were talking about a larger frame. I assume you may be going to, in, in talking about social Darwinism, also tying in eugenics uh, with race and all that? Yeah, Ties it was. Yeah. Absolutely, as you say. Uh, there have been a number of, of good books recently about that, about that time, about social Darwinism, and it's linked to... Um, uh, to, to eugenics and a lot of and racism and a lot of awful things, and that was true in the 1880s and 1890s. But what then followed was actually an important cultural and I would almost say moral change that came over many Americans, especially I would say leading Americans and especially white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. That is, it, because it was associated with the, what was called the social gospel. And the social gospel was a movement called that that wanted to emphasize not, you know, the uh, oppressive and hierarchical parts of, of Christianity, but the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, these folks said, that's, <laughs> that's a very egalitarian, not a very, it's a very communitarian um, uh, aspect of Christianity. So that transformation, I've described it as being associated with, with, um, with uh, evangelical Protestants, but it was true across, the, you can see similar trends within the Catholic Church and so on. So that's, that was what was happening there. Now, what, what, I want to make two quick points, Michael, about that. One, 
it's very hard to tell which of our curves came first, but if you, you had to make a, an argument, Shailen and I both think there's a good case to be made that the precondition for the last time we were in this situation and got out of it, namely at the, at the turn of the 20th century, coming in from the 19th to the 20th century, that the, the precondition of all of those changes was in fact this cultural moral change. Uh, I'm happy to go into more detail about that if you'd like, or your listeners would like, but the, but the implication of that, now reading that into our time, is that Shailen and I both think actually that there are a lot of things we've got to do. I mean, I understand that Mitch McConnell today says it's a 50-50 it's a chance whether the Democrats will do the trifecta, that is take over, the Democrats take over after, after the election, and just assume for the moment that, that uh, he's right. Um, at that point, the Democrats will be in a position to do lots of different things. And they'll, you know, do something on taxes right away. And they'll do something on, um, you know, uh, unemployment insurance and so on. A lot of things that make sense in the short run. But what we think is that it's also important to think about trying to foster, so which is already happening in America, among young people especially, and then to encourage this going forward, much more emphasis on the cultural and moral issues here, not just technically how can we fix the income distribution, but morally, what do we do about this plight we're in? Um, that's why we think that the cultural variable, the moral issues are actually, they were quite important before, and we think they're also quite important now. Yeah, I think, uh, in fact, uh, the interview that I mentioned that was done with David Kennedy, uh, Shailen, you brought up Richard Hofstadter, uh, historian who talked about moral indignation directed inward and uh, calling themselves and others to into account. Uh, I think that's pretty much what Bob is uh, hinting at here. And uh, I get the sense from your book that you both would like to uh, maybe change the world and do some engineering about this upswing and hope that it'll take place. I should reference the fact that there was a New Yorker article by Michael Luo that said that uh, if indeed uh, Biden is victorious in this upcoming election, um, uh, that it would allow for him to really study your work, uh, your new work, as well as uh, the other work that Bob has done, uh, to get a roadmap for natural restoration uh, via collective effort and via really um, a fostering of, of, of a collective American identity. But Bob mentioned that a lot of this is youth, and, and when we go back to the era that we're talking about that's so parallel, as you, as you both see it, to our own era, uh, youth had a lot to do with that. Everything was kind of bubbling up, wasn't it, Shailen? That's right. I mean, I think um, something that we often don't realize when we think about the progressive era, we often think of sort of the culmination of the progressive era. We think of Teddy Roosevelt. We think of Jane Addams when she won the Nobel Peace Prize, you know, these these reformers when they were in their twilight years. But actually, their work began much, much earlier than that. Most of the progressives who were doing super important work starting this upswing were doing so when they were under the age of 30. Um, there was an incredible youth energy you got to keep in mind that this was taking place just shortly after the Industrial Revolution, when life had completely changed. I mean, these young people were living in a world that was entirely unrecognizable to their parents, which, you know, that's a little bit analogous to how we're living today. You mentioned, you know, the social media didn't exist back then or the Internet didn't exist back then. Well, you know, the Internet didn't exist 20 years ago. So, you know, we're living in a similarly changed world uh, today to a generation or two before, and that was the experience of the progressives. So these young people were having to make their way in an entirely changed world, and they realized that they needed to employ their energy both toward that moral 
shift, but also toward a real innovative foment of ideas. They really, now it's important to point out when we talk about the progressive era, we're using the term differently than it's used today, right? When you use the term progressive today, it's, it's the far right um, end of the political spectrum. But back then, in 1912, no, far left, or, far, or excuse least, me, far left, <laughs> not always far um, left, just on the left. Yeah, sure. Right. And but today, but when we're looking at the progressive era, historically, this was really a phenomenon that went across both parties. Um, in the 1912 election, all three political candidates identified themselves as progressive. They were sort of jockeying for who deserved that title more. Um, and so there was a great sense of innovation that was going to transcend this gridlocked left-right framework. And there was a lot of inventiveness that animated this lapse, last, last upswing. And a lot of the innovation really bubbled up from the neighborhood level from the city level, from the state level, you know, the big ideas that ultimately came to characterize the national programs of the progressive era came from small towns. And the, the one that we love to highlight is, of course, um, public high school. It's kind of hard to imagine, but public high schools didn't exist before the progressive era, really anywhere in the world. Private high schools did, of course, private secondary school did. But all of a sudden, people in small towns in America looked around and realized that the economy had completely changed, that their young people were going to have to get a different kind of education if they were going to succeed in this industrialized economy. And they said, well, we can't afford to send our kids off to the East Coast to do private schooling. So we're going to have to band together and create free public secondary schooling. And they did. They passed local tax laws and they came together and said, all of our kids, by virtue of living in this town, are going to get a free public education. And that idea started again in small towns in the Midwest. And then it, within about 10 years, went completely viral. So when we look back to that history, we think, oh, well, certainly it was somebody in Washington or somebody at Harvard that invented this idea of free public education. Not at all. This was something that came from that came from below. And ultimately, you know, this was a complementary bottom-up and top-down movement, but the energy of it came from the youth and it came from below. And that's certainly the message that comes across in your book. The book, uh, I don't want to make it sound like it's uh, got homilies in it, but there certainly are messages and important messages of the need to take up agency and the need to get a mastery really over, uh, well, or toward the future by youth, especially uh, as things change and uh, we might ask ourselves how best to inspire youth. I think uh, you touch upon some of that and, and particularly uh, bring it into the fore. I want to go to uh, some of our callers. Before I do, I had teased a little bit about the fact that you both come from, uh, uh, shall we say, very dissonant geographical backgrounds. Uh, uh, Shailen's over there in southern Utah, and uh, Bob Putnam lives in New Hampshire in a very Thoreauvian setting. Um, New and in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the bluest of blue. <laughs> Yeah, but you, your more identity is Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Harvard, I know. And actually, Shailen was uh, educated at Harvard as well. I'm just wondering, because I was teased by that uh, disagreement that you seem to have about how things are going to turn out on Tuesday. Could we just, I don't want to dwell on this, but could, could you get your reading of what you think is going to happen, or what you, as opposed to what you hope is going to happen? Can I begin with you, Shailen? Uh, sure. Because, forgive me, it's a battle between individualistic battles, uh, values and communitarian values, just what we're talking about in many, in many people's minds. It is. I mean, Utah's a really interesting place to live right now because, you know, his, you know, Utah tends to score really high on social capital. It tends to be a very communal connected place, right? But at the same time, you know, when I'm looking outside my window and, and you know, driving down the street, I'm seeing um, a lot of Trump supporters, a lot of don't tread on me attitude, a lot of anti-masking undercurrents. And so I'm, 
uh, seeing that stuff up close and personal, that that is sort of the counter ideology to the idea that we need to put these differences aside and all come together, right? And so whereas I'm hopeful that things are going to turn, I also understand that there's a lot of people in America who are not ready to make that turn or don't think that that's the turn we should make. And, and so, Bob Putnam is in a kind of Bay Area bubble, like so many of us who live here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's partly that. You know, Michael, uh, you know this because we've talked a lot over the last 20 years. Uh, I try to do really good social science, and I uh, want to be sure that anybody who has doubts about my social science can raise them. That's really important. But I also want to change the world. Um, and as I've gotten older, I've gotten I, I, my the emphasis I put on those two goals is, has has changed a little bit. I really now do want to change the world. And therefore, I care a lot about, I mean, one way to put it is, you know, I'm, I'm almost 80. I've got grandchildren. I would love to see my grandchildren living in a world that is a little more friendly, a little more communitarian, to use that jargon. And, and that's going to happen, have to happen quickly. And I think it could happen, actually. Um, the difference between Shailen and me, I think, is it's mostly, actually, it's not, it's not a difference about which, what we want. We both are very eager to have a pivot toward a more we society. Uh, and maybe because I'm living, when I look out my window here, I'm, I'm, um, I, I see um, certainly zero Trump signs, lots of, lots of Biden signs, and everybody's wearing a mask. This is, this is unbelievably a, um, a blue area. I mean, a, a, yeah, a blue area. So, um, Part of, I'm, I'm trying to answer your question, why am I more optimistic? Part of it is actually, it's, I really want, I want change now. And Shaley's got a longer time to wait for. Um, and the second is, I think, I, you're, as you said, I'm living in an area where it's, it's just so easy to imagine that, you know, this kind of progressive in both senses uh, period is going to, you know, come and it's going to come in another week. That's sort of the feeling around here. And I know that's not the feeling out. And I think actually, Shannon and I have talked about this. I think her neighbors are going to be shocked beyond belief if anything like what I think is going to, or what Mitch McConnell thinks is going to happen, happens. Because I think they live in, a, we all live in bubbles, but their bubble is so much out of tune with what's happening in America, not just in Cambridge, but across the country. It's going to be a really interesting you know, there's Michael, there was back in the day in the 50s, there was a famous study called When Prophecy Fails, which was a study of what happened when a, when a group of people who were sort of in a cult like, you know, they said that their, their cult leader said, well, the, you know, the end of the world is coming. A spaceship's going to come down and pick us up next week. Well, it didn't come. So the people who did it studied what happened. And I think we should somebody should do another study like that. Of, I'm not saying that the people in, in Utah or even the Trump people are kind of completely nuts. But I am saying it's, it's like that in the sense that they're going to have to figure out what to make of, I think, what to make of, you know, what the, the world they wake up, wake up in, in, you know, in a week or 10 days. Well, there's still uh, lots to be decided upon uh, next week and not just on Tuesday, which is a good way for me to encourage people to vote if they haven't already done it. I mentioned New Hampshire because... Uh, Robert Putnam does have some roots there as well, because for the first time, the New Hampshire Daily Newspaper came out in favor of a Democratic candidate, Joe right. Biden. 
Uh, and the book that they've done, which I want to mention again, uh, goes into a lot of culture. The metrics here are economics, politics, society, but also culture. And do, they do get into race and gender analysis as well. Uh, it's a very ambitious book, and I want to bring our listeners aboard and remind you that you can join us toll-free at 866-733-6786. Let's go to Calvin as our first caller. Calvin, welcome. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, I really want to say I appreciated the comments that were made about the uh, social gospel at the turn of the 20th century. I'm a pastor, and I've been really lamenting the fact that many Christians have kind of removed themselves from the cultural sphere and seen Christianity really only as something that speaks to individual moral behavior. Uh, but the comment that was made, which are that the teachings of Jesus, really do speak to a way of life for a community, for uh, how we orient ourselves not just as individuals, but as uh, a culture and a people and a way that we organize and make sense of our life together. So I really appreciate those comments, and I'll take my take the comments off the air. Well, thank you for bringing that up. And uh, Shailen Romney Garrett, I'm going to go to you on this. Uh, there has been, you know, some pretty significant seismic changes with respect to religion, much more secularization from the time of uh, the period that you focus a lot of your attention on. That is since the, the so-called Gilded Age, that's Twain's term. But we've seen uh, a rise of religion again. And I think the pastor's call is really relevant here because a lot of that religion doesn't talk so much about humanitarian uh, humanitarian ideas, uh, what we were describing, Bob calls it jargon, but for lack of a better word, as it talks about, well, things like abortion or questions about uh, whether people should uh, uh, smoke marijuana. I mean, you know, moral questions in many people's minds. Yeah, I mean, I think what was so inspiring about the social gospelers was that they were taking the whole gospel as a blueprint for how to organize society rather than saying, okay, here's one issue that we need to, you know, hone in on. They said, okay, wait a second. What was the type of society that Jesus was trying to promote? Was it a society in which we were fighting all the time? Was it a society in which it was, you know, a zero sum game? Was it a competitive society or was it a society that took care of its most vulnerable people? And, and so what I love about that movement of the social gospel was to zoom out and say, okay, there's a bigger question about our primary conceptions. Washington Gladden, who was one of the most famous social gospelers, used, um, used this phrase that the trouble is in our primary conceptions. So his, you know, he said, you know, it's, we can't imagine that changing our government or, or the organization of our industries is going to bring us peace. We have to change our primary conceptions. And I think that I, you know, I long for more of that um, type of, of viewpoint to come out of the Christian world. And we're seeing some of this, you know, we see the Reverend William Barber, who is in, engaging in these moral marches on Washington. He's really taken up um, the mantle of what um, Dr. Martin Luther King began and then right before he was assassinated, which was um, the poor people's campaign, right? Again, taking the gospel and letting it speak to bigger issues about how we organize ourselves, how we take care of one another, rather than just saying, I'm going to, you know, my faith speaks to one or two issues and I'm going to fight to the death on those two issues. I think that that's gotten us nowhere. It's gotten us completely gridlocked and it's allowed us to let a lot of other more important moral issues slide, in my opinion. Also struck by the fact that we now have a new Supreme Court Justice, Amy Coney Barrett, who is highly religious and, uh, you know, a Pentecostal Catholic uh, who speaks in tongues and all of that, but who 
is linked to a communitarian ideal, but it's narrow. It's this uh, notion of kind of a pod. I mean, the group works together and they live together and they're almost a small group uh, as opposed to being more expansive, which were more in the ideals of what we were talking about in the earlier period. Uh, let me read some comments that are coming in. And uh, a listener writes, one policy that I think might create a less divisive future for America is two years of compulsory military service, so even rich kids like Trump can't get out of it. Uh, <laughs> Balthazar writes, if we're using progress and unity of white men to historically claim America's unity, it seems that we should use women and minorities as the standard instead. And Tina says, I'm curious about opinions about how the U.S. lost its social cohesion. How did this incredible increase in the income gap happen under the watch of the baby boomers? Maybe we can take that up after a quick break and remind you of uh, the fact that we are talking with Shailen Romney Garrett and Robert Putnam, authors of a new book called The Upswing. And you are indeed welcome to join the program. We'll return with more of your calls and emails. You're listening to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Our guests this hour are Robert Putnam and Shailen Ronnie Garrett. Their new book is called The Upswing. We go to some callers, but before I do, I want to get some responses from either or both of you with respect to the comments I just read, uh, especially th that first comment from Baltazar, who says, if we're using the progress and unity of white men to historically claim America's unity, it seems we should use women and minorities as the standard instead. What do you think, Bob Putnam? Well, I certainly agree that, uh, and this, I should say, by the way, because your readers will know this, we devote... Um, Two, uh, two whole chapters solely to the questions of race and gender. So, um, and, and we have a lot to say. Among other things, that means it's going to be hard for us, either of us, to condense all that into you know, a couple of sound bites now. But we, that is to say, we think those are very important issues. And it goes without saying, I suppose, that we're, both of us are strongly in favor of, um, for example, the, the Black, Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter movement. We're strongly in favor of that. Uh, for, for many reasons. I'm just trying to say we're not, sometimes people misunderstand, um, <laughs> oddly enough, uh, sometimes people on the opposite side misunderstand my role. So there was a Wall Street Journal article yesterday that said, isn't Putnam is great because he shows why uh, diversity doesn't work. And, and, and that's nuts. My view, in fact, is that we're, we're going to be a lot better off when we get um, closer to, much closer to, to equality. So that means, yes, women and, and uh, minorities, especially blacks, but not only blacks, um, need to have a much larger, that, that improving their well-being relative to white men is an important test, really, of how much progress we are making toward we. Um, and well, excuse um, me, Bob, don't you point out, in fact, in the book, when you're talking about the Black Lives Matter movement, that uh, not only does it has it galvanized multiracial protests over the killings that occurred, uh, but also that it uses a moral language. I think that's an important point. Absolutely. I mean, there, there are a number of things that make it extremely interesting. One is that it uses moral language. Two is it's heavily concentrated among young people and, and change both in the, you know, 125 years ago and, and now change is much more likely to come from young people. Um, and it's, also the case, it links to actually another part of the story that Shailen didn't quite finish, which is what happened in terms of the data, what happened after 
the civil rights revolution. And this common story that many white people believe is after the civil rights revolution, things got better. You know, we finally, the scales from, fell from our eyes. We heard Martin Luther King and, and things got better and better. That was, that is not true at all. Actually, things have certainly not improved. Actually, in terms of black, white equality, things have actually somewhat worsened over the last 50 years, not improved. And I, as in all these cases, blacks, blacks know the facts. Blacks know that they were making progress from, from roughly 1920 to 1970. They, they know that well, perfectly well, but whites don't. And similarly, blacks know perfectly well that they have not made progress since, you know, since the Kerner Commission report um, at, you know, in the 60s. But um, Whites don't know it. And, and so part of, part of what's going on in America today is that whites are learning more about the facts about race from whites, uh, from blacks. You're also right about, of course, the backlashes that have occurred, and that has to be seen in the bigger picture. But you point out that this I period, as opposed to the we period, is even less hospitable to races. Uh, and it ties also in, I think, the I and we with immigration laws. I think uh, you're right in pointing out that in the 60s uh, uh, there was a whole different attitude toward immigration but now uh, a lot of over a generation a lot of those immigrants have assimilated and that has happened previously of course in the earlier period that we've been talking about i wondered also about the other question that was raised by a listener um, and Chalen, let me go to you on this uh, how do we let this uh, uh, listener mentioned baby booners happen under their watch sure well <laughs> So I'm not a baby boomer. <laughs> I remember. Don't, don't feel, that's my generation. You don't have to feel you're defending it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm among the post-baby boom generations who kind of wondered what went wrong there. Um, but I do think, you know, a lot was it gained. It may give you a better perspective. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, a lot was gained in the rights revolutions. Let's, let's be clear, right? But also, I think that what, what we saw was on both sides, and it's clear, to, it's, it's important to make this clear, on both sides of the political spectrum, what we began to see was an overemphasis on rights and and in, and in beginning to underemphasize our responsibilities to one another right and so um in a way we created this sort of war of the wees where we had this identity politics where the expectation was that everyone was going to just sort of fight for their piece of the pie um and i you know that's a competitive a meritocratic mindset that i think a lot of young people today just say didn't work it worked for one generation, hasn't worked for anybody else that's come after them. And we need to start, again, going back to that idea of changing our primary conceptions. Um, is there some other way that we can organize society rather than around this competitive meritocratic idea? Oh, that's a central question. And let me bring another caller on. OV joins us next. OV, welcome. You're on the air. Okay, thanks, thanks for taking my call. Uh, so far, what I'm uh, hearing is not of no focus on the idea of political economy. In other words, money and power. Who has the money and power? What about corporate domination and domination of the country by the uh, wealthy? And this idea about Joe Biden ushering in a new era is ridiculous. The Democrats have spent the last 50 years dismantling the New Deal programs. They also represent money and power of the wealthy. So my, my thing is that I, I've been reading Sheldon Rowland's book on Democracy Incorporated, and also the main point I want to make is that we've got to start moving towards socialism, start using the S word openly, 
and get down to really the material facts in terms of who has the money and the power. And then the ideas will follow after we shift that. Well, I thank you, Ovi, for the call. I think there is a division in the division that's made uh, in the author's books, you could argue, between capitalism, the I uh, putting forward, and socialism, the we. Uh, and that's not to make a case for either one. It's uh, just Michael, Bob, yeah. Michael, can I, uh, this is Bob. I, can I come in? Because I, I think Ovi is on to something important. I don't agree with everything he said, but I want to emphasize one thing that he said that is actually, I think he doesn't realize this, completely consistent, completely consistent with our emphasis on the progressive era. If you look back at the progressive era, the thing that they were most concerned about was the combination of economic and political power, monopoly. If you look back at the discussions that were going on in that period, there's a ton that we can learn, absolutely a ton we can learn from their, from their discussions about what we do now about, I mean, their monopolies were different. Their monopolies that they were concerned about were railroads and, you know, and the, the major um, industries of that era. And we're concerned about, um, you know, especially, the, at least I am, about the monopolies of, of, in the financial world and also in the high tech world. But the, indeed, Elizabeth Warren, for example, if you read her speeches, she explicitly says we have to do what they did back in the progressive era. So I, I actually think if you really look closely at the progressive era, you will find, Obi, that there are a ton of lessons we could almost uh, literally, I'm, I'm not even joking, you could almost take literally the laws that were passed then. Of course, eventually the laws, those laws became out of date because the realities changed as, as the as steel and railroads and so on and oil became less important. But the, you could almost take the letter of those laws and pass them, you know, next January. And that would represent, in fact, the renewal of the progressive era. And here's Matthew. Matthew, thank you for waiting. You're on. Hi there. Uh, I'm a big, huge fan of Bob Putnam. I loved Bowling Alone. I feel like it's a real honor to get to talk to you. Um, I, my question is, um, you know, I was deeply involved with the Hillary campaign back in 2016. And one of the things I really bristled at in the upheaval afterwards was this idea that I heard from a lot of people that I know about how the, idea of not my president and that uh i always thought that was a little creepy or not creepy but i was uncomfortable with it because it is like i, th I think it is important to be like he is your president and this is really the country we live in and so um i guess my question is from a practical standpoint uh how do we i mean how do we on a day-to-day -day basis and on a relationship to person-to-person -person level how do we put into i uh, practice this idea of um, you know, bringing people together and changing the way that we think about things and the way that we um, frame our political debate. You like some thoughts from uh, Matthew's question from you, Shailen Rodney Garrett? Yeah, a couple things there. I think, you know, and this speaks to something mentioned by the previous caller as well. One of the other things that's very clear from the progressive era is that the charismatic political leadership really lagged it wasn't that some charismatic political national leader came along and set this whole thing in motion. So it is a bit of a ridiculous idea that if, even if Joe Biden and, you know, and the Democrats sweep, that all of a sudden that's going to you know, change everything. It's not going to change everything because there needs to be 
some vast issue-based coalition building that undergirds this thing. Um, when you look at Teddy Roosevelt, you know, he came at the end of the progressive era. He came along after the hard work had been done of coalition building and of ideas bubbling up from below. And he built then the bipartisan coalitions that made these things pass, but that didn't happen right away. Right. And so it's important to remember that, that even if it's not your guy that gets elected on Tuesday, um, that, you know, it isn't that that's not the most important piece of this. The other thing that I would emphasize is that one of the things that was one of the most important pieces of the progressive era was that associations, relationships, face-to-face -face connections were both considered an end and a means of the progressive era reformers. They were living in a lonely, atomized, disconnected world, much like we are today. And so first and foremost, they came up with inventive ways to bring people together just because they needed new forms of community. But then that created this vast store of social capital that Bob's work has shown, um, you know, really fueled the upswing for decades and is an important missing piece in our society today. So I would say, look, no matter who wins on, on I don't know if we're going to know who wins on Tuesday, but no matter who wins in the, in the long run in this presidential election, what matters is the relationships that we have with our neighbors in our local communities, and that those relationships be not taking place just in silos, but that we are reaching across to people who disagree with us and recognizing that we are all part of the same we. We are all part of this American we, no matter who the president is. Though, as I alluded to earlier, the internet uh, and now certainly the pandemic make it harder and more challenging in ways that we hadn't imagined. Uh, I think that has to be uh, uh, brought into the discussion. And uh, and yet, you know, I get the sense from your work that uh, I, I keep thinking of what Martin Luther King said. He was often quoted by President, former President Barack Obama, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. I think that's implicit in the hope uh, that you're raising about the importance of agency, particularly from youth and moral agency, and really bringing about changes. Uh, here's a, a question from Steve, though, which has to do with maybe what you're prescribing. He wants to know what issues do you think are most likely to come together on that we, uh, that is Americans, uh, or for that matter, globally now, are like, it's not abortion, he says, I don't think it's taxes. Could it be housing? Obama thought it would be health care. What do you think, Bob Putnam? Um, Steve, that's a great question. And uh, it's one we've thought a little bit about, um, uh, a bit with reference back to the original progressive era, but you know, we're also living in the same world that you are. And so we're, we're also thinking about, you know, what should come, what should come next. Um, and uh, it, Shannon and I differ a little bit, not in sort of what should come next, but in a sense of how um, hard it's going to be to bring the country together. And I think, um, I think, and Shannon I think has a different view, that once, once we're past the election, if it turns out the way we expect, and Mitch McConnell expects, that is with a trifecta, once we're past that, I think that a lot, there'll be an initial shock to the 30 or 35% of the public that are in the Trump world. But I think they will gradually get over it, especially if, as I firmly suspect, Biden will make a lot of um, policy and, I mean, he'll be doing, doing things that they want in trade and so on. And he'll also be talking about the need for us all to come together. I do think that um, there's one area, one slice of the population that won't be easily reconciled and that's loosely the white militia the 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 proud boys i think actually i think no matter what happens next week um we're in for a year or two of um domestic terrorism um uh, uh, brought about by a tiny tiny group of people i mean really tiny it's by no means i mean leftists like like me like to think it's it's the whole of the 
of the whole of the Trump world, but it isn't. It's well, forgive me, Bob, part. but the FBI has been telling us that it's been growing for a number of years now. Yeah, absolutely. So that w- it will, in terms of domestic terrorism, the next couple of years, no matter who wins, it's going to be kind of bad, frankly. Um, but we can get over that. And, and once we allow our, our normal institutions, like the FBI, to, to function as they should, it'll be, it'll be I, I don't mean to, the world won't be perfect, of course not, but it won't be, I don't think we're going to have, um, if, if there is a trifecta, I think we're, it's not going to be nearly as, as divisive, but I think Shailen has a different view. This is one way in which I'm a little more optimistic, and I think Shailen's a little more pessimistic. Well, no, I, I just I just live in a part of the country where that um, side of the spectrum is more visible, right? And so um, it's it's just viscerally real to me in terms of sure. what I see as I drive down the street, you know. But I would I would just want to speak to the um, the caller's question about the issues. You know, I think Bob and I both agree that the ultimate we issue is climate change, right? I mean, that is an issue that that you know at the end of the day affects all of us equally. I mean, we know that it affects unequally in terms of um, minority communities and other things, but but it is interesting that climate overlaps with the Black Lives Matter movement, it, and it overlaps with a lot of other things. It, it overlaps with economics, you know, in the sense of how we need to restructure society to bring employment. And I, so I would say my greatest hope is is that that will be the issue that unites us. And, you know, it may be that certain people are compelled to get on board with that because natural disaster comes to their front door. I hope that, that we can choose, use our agency to choose to, to put forward, um, you know, climate change solutions before that happens. But it may be that, that, uh, that the coalition is built simply out of necessity as things get worse and worse um, environmentally. And let me bring another caller bar while we have a little time left. Brad, go ahead and join us. Welcome. You're on the air. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I think the, the key fundamental problem of all this is that we're running an economic system where people have to trade their labor for money, yet people like Bezos can leverage money and get more and more. And the whole system based on is based on making money. There's no value for, for any of these things you're talking about, the Kumbaya stuff about relationships and and good sounding things like that, we're all for that, but that's just not valued in the current version of capitalism that we all have so much faith in. So uh, I think what we really need to do is embrace, uh, sure, the social patches like Sanders and, and so on endorse about leveling the inequality, fundamentally great, but ultimately we are not running on a sustainable economic model. We need to embrace technology. Technology needs to be our God, not religion not making money, but that's currently our, what our, our problem is. So. All right, Brad, I thank you for the call. And we're going back to power and money like the other caller brought up. Uh, we've got a little amount of time left here, but you want to say something about that, Bob Putnam? So yeah, you've been dealing with it for these many are really years. important questions. I, I totally take them seriously. Um, it's important to keep in mind, however, Brad, that America had a completely capitalist system in 1950, had a completely capitalist system in 1940, had a completely capitalist system that is the ownership of the means of production was in the hands, uh, was in the hands of the owners and, and, and workers were subject to the market. But nevertheless, that was a period in which we had a much, much more equal distribution of income. I mean, uh, not perfect, but way, way more equal than now. So what I'm saying is the, the formal system was the same but the outcome was extremely different. Any of us would die for the level of equality that was, was had, you know, 
under Eisenhower. I mean, or any, you know, Eisenhower was a, you know, he was a capitalist and all that, and he hung out with economic folks, I mean, with, with leaders. But in fact, he presided over an extremely equal period in the division of income in America. And we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much, uh, Bob Putnam. Thank you, uh, Shailen Romney-Garrett. And thank you, our listeners. The book, again, is called The Upswing. And uh, for all of us here at KQED Public Radio, please stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.